Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. I believe we're all wondering what comes next after flattening the curve. And that's what we're talking about today. And I'm very pleased to have Katie Love back with us, bringing us This Week in Science History. Well, I've got some good news. I finally found the corner of my house that looks best for professional video calls. It was a much appreciated victory after a long struggle to replace my lost cell phone this past weekend, which would have been frustrating even before I started wearing a mask, staying six feet away from everyone at the store and regarding any object outside my home with suspicion. So as the coronavirus continues pushing our daily lives into new and stressful territory, I want to talk about one of the holy grails in fighting against COVID-19, herd immunity, and how we can emerge from our homes in a way that's safe for ourselves, our families, and our communities. In a previous episode of the Got Science podcast, we learned from immunology expert Dr. Joanne Welsh that it will likely be over a year before we see a coronavirus vaccine. So what's the plan until then? How can we safely leave our self-contained bubbles before a vaccine is available? Unsurprisingly, the answer is complicated, especially when new information comes in almost every hour. To understand all the variables that experts need to study and consider, I decided to speak to one directly. Our guest today is Dr. Beth Linus, an infectious disease epidemiologist who's passionate about using data to inform public health policy. She talks about the unique challenges of trying to contain a novel virus, a.k.a. the reasons why we have to treat this so differently from the seasonal flu, and explains why it's still too soon to go back to our offices, even though the curve is flattened. And she gives us an important crash course on how diseases move through communities, how contact tracing works, and how we hope to achieve herd immunity and protect everyone. Beth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we've been hearing a lot recently about herd immunity, and I do want to get to that and some other topics. But first, can you just give us a a basic understanding of how our bodies develop immunity to a virus? Sure. Viruses, like other pathogens, bacteria, for example, um, don't produce symptoms as soon as you come into contact with them. So What happens is they come through your body, in this case, probably through your nose, mouth, or eyes, and there's an incubation period. And an incubation period is the time where the virus multiplies to a threshold necessary to produce symptoms. And at the same time, during that period, your body's immune system recognizes the virus and reacts through some, a couple of different immune responses. So it produces specific cells that can then release specific antibodies to fight infection. And so if your immune system can keep the virus population in your body below a certain threshold, you might not experience symptoms, but you can still spread the virus, as we know in COVID. Every individual's immune system is different in how it works and um, produces these antibodies. If I get COVID-19 and I recover, am I then immune? You know, so that's a good question. We're not 100% sure. Generally, we expect for people to be immune initially because you have produced antibodies to COVID. Now, viruses, viruses like COVID are RNA viruses like the flu. 
and HIV. And they are known to mutate, but it's not clear how or if or when COVID will mutate. And so there is an expectation of some sort of immunity. We don't know for how long, but that's sort of the prevailing thought at the moment. I think Dr. Fauci spoke about this as well. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, you know, we have to get a flu shot every year because the flu, it, it mutates. Um, and so they make a new vaccine every year. But we know that you have some sort of immunity. We're just not sure how much and for how long. So then what is herd immunity? So herd immunity is this concept that at a very basic level, if enough people are immune, you yourself could be protected if you weren't to have a vaccine, for example. So it is sort of an indirect form of protection. It, it requires a large percentage of the population to be immune and with that immunity at a population level, the virus can't effectively move between people. And so that's why it's so important when the flu vaccine comes, when we get the flu shot, we want as many people as we can to get the vaccine so they're immune because we know some people can't get a vaccine and other people, um, even they're just immunocompromised. We want to be able to protect everyone. And so that herd immunity allows us to attempt to do that so that if something does come into our communities, it doesn't have enough susceptible people or people who are not protected to infect. And so we don't have a good sense at the moment how many people in our country would need to be immune. I've been reading that prevailing thoughts are sort of we need 80% of our population would need to be immune. And it's tough because this is a completely novel virus. So no one has seen it before. So every single person was susceptible. With other viruses, that's not necessarily the case. Um, it's, a, it's a little more complicated to do the calculations. So the, you know, the flu changes and some people have immunity and doesn't. This virus, everyone is susceptible, which is why at the moment we're seeing such large numbers of infection and such high numbers of, sadly, death. So to get to the percentage of the population being immune, is that mainly through a vaccine or a combination of people gaining immunity through being exposed to it? So generally, we don't want to put, you know, we don't want anyone to become exposed and ill to get immunity. We don't know if someone might succumb to the disease, right? And we can do it in a very controlled fashion by using a vaccine right? We can implement it and make sure, and then we can we can know exactly who had the vaccine and who didn't. And so generally speaking, vaccination is the best way for us to sort of control and develop this herd, herd immunity. Now, you know, we know people, not everyone will get vaccinated for a variety of reasons. And at the moment, we don't have a vaccine, right? So at the moment, we know people who have, become, you know, got COVID and recovered, we expect them to be immune. And then hopefully, eventually, we'll have a vaccine. And so there will be a combination of those who are vaccinated and those who have become sick and recovered to help get that herd immunity. I'm assuming a vaccine is going to be probably 12 months minimum to be developed, and then it has to be deployed. What do we do between now and then? How do we manage this virus? Yeah, so this is the million-dollar question right now, right? In epidemiology, we have some very basic tools in a toolbox that we know work, but they're laborious um, and some people think cumbersome, but this physical distancing is, is really effective. The virus can't 
go places if people aren't moving. And so the physical distancing is one of our main tools. The other tools that we have are, I'm sure people have heard of, of contact tracing and isolation and quarantine. And those are other tools we use to detect and find people who are sick and keep them at a physical distance until they've recovered and also keep people who haven't become sick also separated from those who may or may not have symptoms. So let's give, give me a definition of those because I suspect a lot of people might not be familiar with yeah. those tools. Generally speaking, isolation is when we separate sick people with contagious diseases from people who are not sick so they can recover. Quarantine separates and restricts the movement of people who are exposed to a contagious disease to see if they become sick. They may have been exposed to a disease and don't know it, or they may have the disease and not show symptoms. So for example, right now I'm just social distancing. I haven't, to my knowledge, um, been exposed. And so my I, I keep on social distancing. For example, if I was still working in my office and someone became sick, that person would then be put in isolation. And myself, if I had been in sustained contact with them, which we know co close contact is, you know, within the CDC suggests six feet for a little bit of time, so more than a second, you know, maybe five to 10 minutes, I would then be put in quarantine to see if I get sick. But the idea is if I were to come home and my partner who hadn't at that moment been exposed, well, they would have to be put in quarantine as well. So for me, it's not terribly difficult because I, have, I, I don't have children and my partner would be A-OK. -okay. But when you think about families, it's really not sustainable or feasible or right to sort of separate, you know, parents and children. We can't really do that. So that's the tricky part between quarantine and isolation and contact tracing that sort of in our country we're sort of grappling with. Contact tracing seems really difficult to me. I mean, I'm assuming that means if somebody has it, you have to figure out how many people they've come into contact with and for how long and then how many people they've come into contact with. It's difficult in the sense that it takes a lot of people and probably people hours, but the basic concept is what you just described, which is you try to speak to the individual who is sick. They typically say, at that moment, they call that person the index case, and you try to learn where, where they have been and who they've been in contact with, and then go speak to those individuals and, and do the same thing. And it allows you to create sort of this map of, if you can imagine a map of movement, and you can see where people who have come, come into contact. And then also, you, you're also trying to figure out where that index case was infected. So initially, in, you know, in Seattle, and before community spread was happening, we knew a lot of the cases, the, the initial cases, were coming from people who traveled in, from China. They were in China, they came back to America. So that index was pretty straightforward. It does become more difficult when you get have community spread and community transmission because you're sort of piecing together who went where. But it's very effective because you sort of deploy other people, you know, it takes many people to do this and then you isolate and quarantine, isolate and quarantine and you keep following up with those individuals about their symptoms and how they're feeling. You could do it over the phone and you know, now we're trying to determine if we could do it digitally. And it's it's laborious, but it's not sort of it's easier than trying to figure out a vaccine at the moment, right? Like this is the tool we have, you know, it's going to, vaccines have to go through trials and we have to, there's a lot that has to happen with the vaccine. So this is really just the, the upfront tool we have right now. 
We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. The Got Science Podcast is all about how science can make the world a better place. If you like our show, we think you'd also like Science Rising, a movement to fight for science in our democracy. They provide resources that can help you register to vote, make a plan to vote, and join in civic engagement activities that are now being offered online. Check out sciencerising.org for more information. That's sciencerising.org. If you like the podcast, you can help us reach more people by simply sharing the podcast with your friends, coworkers, and on your social networks. Another way to help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quick and super easy. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at Got Science UCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So would the CDC be in charge of managing contact tracing? In our country, we have reportable diseases um, that are mandated if they are if if you find a patient that has a, an infection that you report to the local health department. The the flu is one of them, obviously, but then several STDs, measles, mumps, and the reason why we have that. Is so when we, if there are cases, we go out and we start contact tracing and we start interviewing people. Now, something like an STD is a little bit easier to contact trace because we know exactly how one becomes infected, right? And so we know that if Joe was in a coffee shop and had gonorrhea, most no one in the shop would have gonorrhea. We wouldn't have to worry about that. We know that it's transmitted through sexual activity. So we would speak to Joe about his sexual contacts. Now that's hard because some people don't want to talk about it, but we know that we need to, that's how we contact trace. In this case, COVID should be, you know, would be reported to the local health department and they can go out and talk to those individuals. But this transmission is different. And also we know that everyone's susceptible. Um, So the local health department really is responsible for that. But quickly, we became overwhelmed with cases. Now that we're coming to a different part of in some cities, so I don't know if New York's there yet, but we'll use it as an example that they could possibly start going back and then contact trace. And then it could be coordinated through the federal government, through the CDC, because this is an op- this is a pandemic. This is a, this is not a localized outbreak, right? It's not happening in one place. But really, we've never sort of done contact tracing at this scale, so I, it's tricky. And so that's why people are very interested in using these digital technologies to be able to do it. Right. What are epidemiologists specifically focusing on? For me. Um, my background as an epidemiologist in infectious disease is looking at people at risk for certain infectious diseases. So my previous research and work was all about looking at um, people who inject drugs and and their risk for infection of a variety of different viruses, HIV, hepatitis. So for me, I'm really interested in populations of, of who are getting sick and why and understanding how we could help them. So sadly, we're seeing already this disparity that's occurring uh, for African-American individuals and, and Hispanics that 
they're becoming sick at higher rates and succumbing at higher rates than others. And we have a pretty good um, thought as to why on the social side. So some of these individuals are most likely essential health workers or essential employees, and they can't stay at home and they can't socially distance. They have to work. They might also live in more dense and crowded housing locations with multiple generations of individuals. So we know that's a problem. And they may or may not have access to primary care to be able to talk to a doctor before they get ill. And then they end up having to go right to the emergency room. So I'm really interested in looking at who and where and why people are getting sick and trying to mitigate that impact or prevent. Other things that epidemiologists are interested in would be you know, how do we do this this testing and tracing and isolation type activity? And others might be really interested to understand why children seem at the moment to be spared and or infected or not infected. We don't really know actually what's going on with children. It, it is super interesting. And then others are really going to be looking at sort of this mass vaccination and or antibody testing. And what does that look like? I believe the CDC has said that up to 25% of the country might be infected without symptoms. Yeah, so that actually goes back to the issue of herd immunity and isolation and contact tracing, because we have now realized, and I think Dr. Redfield of the CDC had quoted up to 25% of the population might have be infected without symptoms. Either they're pre-symptomatic or they're asymptomatic, which are slightly different the prevailing thought from sort of the Infectious Disease Society of America suggests it's probably pre-symptomatic, but we don't know. The reason why we want to test is because if people if people have antibodies and they might be immune, then we'd be able to, you know, those individuals could ostensibly be more frontline or go to work, you know, do go about their day to day, for example. If they're not and they're totally susceptible and they have no exposure, they haven't had any known exposure, then we don't want to put more people at risk. And so we're trying to get a sense of where people are sort of in the, if they have, you know, in the infection, if you will, so that we can sort of in a more educated way, understand how we could reopen, you know, society, if you will. That means you would be testing people who are asymptomatic. In an ideal world, we would test everybody. We, we don't have the ability to do that. We don't have, there's questions with three agents. There's questions with the, some now are questioning whether the tests are, I don't want to say accurate, but there's some questions about false negatives or false positives, I guess more on the false negative side. And we haven't gotten a really good serology test to look for those antibodies. There was sort of, I think, a, ca- a case study or, or example in California looking at an antibody test but that was only in one location. We haven't really nailed down that antibody test, to my knowledge. I could be wrong at this moment. I, you know, the information changes by the hour, almost by the hour, it feels like so. But the idea would be to understand who could go back to work and wh- who could sort of be in these in other populations without concern of reigniting a big spread. So have scientists come up with a plan for how we get back to everyday life? Dr. Scott Gottlieb, um, who was the former FDA commissioner, um, worked with Hopkins and other leading scientists to put out a roadmap. At the WHO, put out a roadmap um, that said, you know, sustained transmission needs to come down. And to do that, we have to we have to understand who's sick, so we have to test. And it's also a measurable thing we can do. You know, we can say, okay, this community where there's been a very high burden of disease, we've tested. You know, we, it might be a 
a weighted sample. We can't test everyone. Do we do we test 50%? Do we test 20%? Those are numbers, you know, that have to be calculated to understand how we could then ensure we've sort of we understand the the spread of the disease in that community. But you know, ideally we we would test everyone. Ideally we would test everyone. Is that feasible and if it is, how quickly could we do that? So you know, the feasibility question has a lot of components to it. So, you know, do we have enough tests? Are there enough reagents for the tests? How fast can we turn around the tests? In terms of doing the testing, and this is just my opinion, I just need to put it out there. It's not something that anyone's doing or could do, but the federal government could partner with private companies. You know, we could, they had drive-through testing. I'm sorry, we had, we did the testing, you know, drive-through. We could do that again and we could scale it. I think that could be feasible. Um, right. So we have we have options or we can think of creative ways to be able to administer the test, but we need to have the test and right. So yeah. The, and the then physical need, right. test. And then you know, and then we need people willing to come out and get tested. There are a lot of for a variety of reasons why people might not want to get tested. And so then we need to, you know, stigma being one of them or fear of losing a job or we have to sort of socialize that. And, and make people realize it's it's about everybody, not just yourself. And so you'd have to work on that. But I think it could be really powerful because we could understand who and where people are more in fact impacted and not. And then work with communities to sort of determine the best way forward and the best path forward for going back to work. For people who are thinking, okay, it's been a month plus that we've been self-isolating the curve is flattened. I'm ready to get back out there. What what would you tell them? I would just tell them that if everyone did that at the same time and we don't know who's sick, we would definitely see increases in cases. If we go back too soon, we're going to be put back where we were in the beginning. And so it's it's really difficult for people who aren't concerned or don't understand why this virus impacts them because no one around them is sick or they're young or they're healthy. They want to go back to work. But the truth is, is that everyone is at risk. And so the physical distancing right now is our best path forward and in testing. And without those things, we we're going to go back to where we were at the very beginning. Nobody really knows if we are going to see a second wave, but it seems likely. What are your thoughts on that? I think there is going to be a low level of COVID spread from here on out, the way the flu spreads. It's an, it's an RNA virus. We know it mutates. I think COVID would possibly be like that. And I think our goal is we don't want it to be worse than that. And so I think we could get to a point where there are you know low level, lower levels of infection and, and hospitalizations. And if we do it correctly, we can get it to a low level that's, I guess, more tolerable. And we could sort of go on with our daily lives. But if we don't do that well, if we open up too early and there's still too much community spread occurring, then I believe there could be a second wave. But I don't know when and I don't know how strong of a second wave it would be because we don't know how long people are immune we, when people, be, you know, people become, are susceptible to begin with, and then they become infected. At this point, many thousands of people have been infected. So there's some sort of immunity there. So a second wave possibly wouldn't be as big, but we don't know. It could be if we just went fully back to normal life and everyone went back to their 
concerts and tr- airplane travel. I think there's going to be underlying spread. I, I, I can't have, I don't have a really good sense of what a second wave would look like in our country. What is the one thing you'd really like people to understand about this virus? I think it's really tough for people to understand that just because you're healthy today or you're going about your day, you know, and, and you may or may not have been exposed two weeks from now, you might be sick. And I think, I think that's scary. I, I, I don't personally, I try not to think about it. It is scary, but I'm just so glad there are experts like you helping us to understand the facts during these challenging times. Um, Beth, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And now it's time for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This week in science history, we're going back 50 years to April 22nd, 1970, the first ever Earth Day. From the air pollution choking major cities to fires on rivers, the U.S. public was becoming increasingly aware of the environmental effects of pollution by the 1960s. Inspired by anti-Vietnam War protests and teach-ins, Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson envisioned Earth Day as a national teach-in on the environment. He was looking to, quote, shake up the political establishment and force this issue onto the national agenda. Events were held throughout the country, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, Denver, Los Angeles, and beyond. And if Senator Nelson was looking for a political shift, he got it. That first Earth Day served as a precursor to some of the most important environmental legislation we have the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Toxic Substances Control Act, and more. As I was looking at imagery from that first Earth Day, I was met with a strange visual symmetry. Many of the activists were wearing homemade masks in response to the air pollution and smog that they were protesting. Earth Day 2020 is also marked with homemade masks, but for a vastly different reason. And what was originally planned as another strike by the worldwide youth climate movement, which brought more than 10 million people to the streets in September 2019, had to evolve to fit the realities of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, like so much of our lives these days, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day had to move online. Even as I record this, the youth climate movement is continuing their three-day online event, Earth Day Live with guests from politicians to musicians, activists from Standing Rock to Black Lives Matter, and discussions from individual action to collective civic engagement. The three-day Earth Day Live event brings people together to inspire, empower, and educate, just as Senator Nelson wanted 50 years ago. And as we watch some of those pivotal environmental bills, such as the Clean Air Act and the Endangered Species Act, it's slowly eroded by politicians and special interests. It's all the more reason to work together to push for science-based solutions and increased civic engagement. If you're looking to continue the momentum of Earth Day and advocate for science, equity, and justice in our democracy, check out sciencerising.org. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. 
Special thanks to Dr. Beth Linus. This Week in Science History was brought to you by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and stay safe, everyone.